Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, The Monster Who Was Sorry, and is based upon the scripture readings in the lectionary for Sunday, September 25th, 2005. Repent and live, thunders Ezekiel in the Old Testament reading for this week. In a culture that has forgotten how to blush, and that counsels us to never apologize and never explain, his words sound archaic and dour, even psychotherapeutically harmful, perhaps. Why such self-hatred, we might ask? But Ezekiel's message is not mere religious rhetoric of the Old Testament, as if it deserved a wink and a knowing smile, nor some linguistic anachronism that we might delete from our moral lexicon. In fact, in the gospel for this week, Jesus himself preaches an identical message. Repent and believe, he says in Matthew 21:32. On the first page of Mark's gospel, the very first words spoken by Jesus proclaim, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. For those who want to live Christianly, then, repentance is central to life rather than peripheral, essential rather than dispensable, obligatory and not optional. And contrary to modern misconceptions, when done well, repentance is entirely life-giving rather than death-dealing, of movement towards health and wholeness rather than a descent into repression and self-recrimination. Repentance best takes place in a church community but it is ultimately a personal act rather than an ecclesiastical ritual. The Protestant reformers insisted on this point as they tried to recover the explosive power of the gospel story that they believed had been encrusted with 1,500 years of arbitrary church authority and tendentious traditions. The very first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses reads, quote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance." Quote. Luther was attacking the medieval sacramental system of penance, and especially the buying and selling of indulgences, a sort of bribe paid to the church which purported to reduce one's penalty for sin. Appealing to the original Greek of the New Testament, Luther insisted that Jesus did not prescribe a complicated ritual that required believers to confess to a priest, purchase an indulgence, repeat so many Hail Marys, and so forth, as suggested by Jerome's Latin translation of the Bible in the 5th century that held sway in the Western Church for a full 1,000 years. Jerome's translation said, do penance. But instead, in a way unmediated by rules, regulations, and formulas, Luther insisted that we simply, if also radically, repent before God himself. Although repentance might have its public and communal dimensions, genuine repentance thus constitutes a deeply personal and individually unique act before both God and my neighbor. If you are lucky, others might help you, but no one can repent for another. You can only repent for yourself. 
In this sense, repentance can be quite simple, as observed by the Syrian abbot John Climacus, who lived in the 6th century, in his book, The Ladder of Design Ascent. Let your prayer be very simple, said St. John, for the tax collector and the prodigal son, just one word was enough to reconcile them to God. A single word might do, but genuine repentance is also a lifelong style of life, which is to say that it is a complex process that acknowledges the ambiguity of our fallen human condition. Since our human condition will never know perfection this side of heaven, we will never know a time when we do not need repentance as our friend. After I had been married a number of years, my wife and I decided to retake some diagnostic tests that we had taken in premarital counseling. I wanted to see if and how we had changed. The answer, at least according to the tests, was not much. When I asked my psychologist friend about my meager progress and my prospects for genuine change, based upon his years of clinical experience, Arden only shrugged. Well, for most people, he said, change is complex, slow, and incremental. With Luther, then, we can say that repentance requires our entire life throughout our life. In the Gospel for this week, Jesus offended his listeners when he observed that decidedly immoral people, like prostitutes and tax collectors, understood and took to repentance better than religiously righteous people. He explained that the religiously righteous wrongly, and to their peril, believe that they are better than they really are, and so they imagine that they don't need to repent. Repent of what, they might say. I'm as good as the next person. Moral outcasts, on the other hand, have no such illusions or compulsions nor the need to hew to a social conventions that protect them. They know how bad off they are. I learned this lesson the hard way when a therapist once informed me that my test scores indicated that I scored way high on the test's built-in fudge factor that smokes out answers that are too good to be true. No, said the therapist, you are not as good as your answers insinuate, nor will this test let you fake it. In fact, your fudge factor is way beyond the standard deviation. Jesus further observed that children are also often better at admitting their faults and failures than adults. My wife had a second grader who once drew a picture of a fierce rhinoceros with a disturbing and unvarnished admission as a caption. I'm as angry as a rhino, wrote the child. Similarly, in her book, Amazing Grace, A Vocabulary of Faith, Kathleen Norris writes about a little boy who wrote a poem called The Monster Who Was Sorry. In the poem, the boy explodes about how he hated it when his father yelled at him. In anger, he threw his sister down the stairs, wrecked his room, then destroyed an entire town. His poem concluded, quote, then I sit in my messy house and say to myself, I shouldn't have done all that, End quote. Commenting on the boy's poem, Norris writes, quote, My messy house says it all. 
With more honesty than most adults could have mustered, the boy made a metaphor for himself that admitted the depth of his rage and also gave him a way out. If that boy had been a novice in a fourth-century monastic desert, his elders might have told him that he was well on the way towards repentance. Not such a monster after all, but only human. If the house is messy, they might have said, why not clean it up? Why not make it into a place where God might wish to dwell? End quote. In repentance, Ezekiel writes, we move beyond mere regret, embarrassment, or shame. Rather, I implore God to help me rid myself of, quote, all the offenses I have committed, and to get a new heart and a new spirit, end quote. Ezekiel 18.31 Through the enabling power of divine grace, we seek a change of mind and heart leading to changed actions, which in the words of St. Paul for this week means that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now here are several questions for further reflection. Can you think of other metaphors for repentance, such as Norris's idea of the messy room? Metaphors that admit one's fault, but also suggest a way forward? What common misunderstandings about repentance perpetuated by church or secular culture can you identify? Third, meditate upon the words of the psalmist for this week, from Psalm 25, where it reads, Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. And finally, I offer a favorite patristic prayer from Arsenios, a monk of the 5th century. My God, do not abandon me. I have done nothing good before thee, but grant me in thy compassion the power to make a start. My book note for September 25th is by, of a book by Bill Bryson entitled A Short History of Nearly Everything, New York, Random House, Broadway Books, 2003. I first read Bill Bryson when a friend recommended that I obtain his book entitled A Walk in the Woods in order to prepare me to hike the 200-mile John Muir Trail. In his Walk in the Woods, Bryson recounts how he and an old friend, both grotesquely out of shape at middle age, hiked the 2,100-mile Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine. I'm a rookie hiker, and my friend advised that Bryson would be an affable if introductory guide. Similarly, you could put my knowledge of science in a thimble, although I do remember the Bunsen burner from high school. So reading Bryson's popular level history of science was a perfect fit for me, and for others too, judging from its success. A short history of nearly everything spent six months on the bestseller list of the New York Times, which pre predicted that it is, quote, destined to become a modern classic of science writing, end quote. Bryson disarms readers from the get-go when he explains why he wrote his book, 
On a long flight across the Pacific Ocean, he realized, quote, with a certain uncomfortable forcefulness that I didn't know the first thing about the only planet I was ever going to live on. I had no idea, for example, why the oceans were salty, but the Great Lakes weren't. Didn't have the faintest idea. And ocean salinity, of course, represented only the merest sliver of my ignorance, end quote. After three years of research, reading, interviews, and asking specialists, quote, a lot of outstandingly dumb questions, end quote, Bryson wrote this gem. He is simply a fantastic writer. His prose sparkles page after page, even if the book is a little long, at 544 pages. Peppered throughout his history are salient quotes from the experts. A virus, notes the Nobel laureate Peter Medawar, is, quote, simply a piece of nucleic acid surrounded by, in, by bad news, end quote. To appreciate the hubris of physics, consider the scorn of Ernest Rutherford, who once remarked, all science is either physics or stamp collecting. Bryson also has mastered the analogy to give us at least a faint idea of the spectacular boundaries of scientific inquiry. If someone struck a match on the moon, he observed, astronomers could spot the flame. Humor is also always a page or so away, as when the famous German Alexander von Humboldt wryly observed the three stages of scientific discovery. First, people deny that something is true, then they deny that it is important, and finally they credit the wrong person. From our cosmological origins in just one of 140 billion galaxies, to the subatomic spectacle of quarks and gluons, to life on Earth and in the sea, in millennia past and in the present, including air and sea, glaciers and cells, Bryson describes the mystery of our world as scientifically understood. What is the weight, diameter, age, or circumference of the Earth, and how do we know? What really is at the core of the Earth, the deepest point in the ocean? Who invented the periodic table that hung on the wall of my 10th grade chemistry class? What was Einstein's appalling piece of science that the great physicist admitted was the biggest blunder of his life? What is Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, and why is it so important? Who discovered plate tectonics? Read Bryson, and you will learn what scientists know and how they know it. You will also learn what scientists do not know, and that, that turns out to be quite a lot conjecture, speculation, extrapolation, and outright guesswork play a role. Bryson clearly loves and appreciates science, but he does us the service of not divinizing it. His book includes brilliant insights by science, but also grandiose mistakes, enlightened scholars and eccentric mavericks, plotting experiments and accidental breakthroughs, princely human beings and petty egomaniacs, noble quests and infantile squabbles. The outrageously chaotic is never far from view either, as with the German chemist Heinrich Brand, who in the 17th century thought he could distill gold from urine. All of which is to say that Bryson himself humanizes the scientific enterprise, and as a consequence makes it so very easy for us to love its labors. My film review for September 25th is a film called Rivers and Tides, Working with Time, 
a documentary about the life of the Scottish artist Andy Goldsworthy. There is a world, remarks the environmental sculptor Andy Goldsworthy of Scotland, beyond which words cannot describe. With that, he tosses a mud ball made of dark red crushed iron stone into a river for an explosion of color. What was once solid is now liquid, the immobile stone now part of the flowing river. Ice, twigs, thorns, dandelions, rocks, sand, sheep wool, snaking ribbons of braided leaves. From the North Pole to Canada, Japan, Australia, and New York, all of Goldsworthy's work, most of which is ephemeral because that same nature will destroy it, is made from the elements of nature, sculpted in nature, and is about nature. But words cannot begin to unpack the haunting beauty and evocative power of his artistic creations. This is a remarkable documentary film about an extraordinary artist doing brilliant work. Goldsworthy narrates the film and explains how and why he does what he does. Themes of creation and creator loom large here. If you cannot watch this wonderful film, simply Google his name to see hundreds of his beautiful works. Finally, for poetry this week, we offer Robert Herrick's poem, To Find God. Weigh me the fire, or canst thou find a way to measure out the wind? Distinguish all those floods that are mixed in that watery theater, and taste thou them as saltless there as in their channel first they were. Tell me the people that do keep within the kingdoms of the deep. Or fetch me back that cloud again, be shivered into seeds of rain. Tell me the motes, dust, sands, and spears of corn when summer shakes his ears. Show me that world of stars, and whence they noiseless spill their influence. This, if thou canst, then show me him that rides the glorious cherubim. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 25th. And please join us every Monday for a new essay based upon the biblical lectionary, a book note, a film review, and a poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.